We are starting our weekly features marking the anniversary of the British invasion with behind-the-scenes Beatles stories from the U.K. And today we're going to take you inside Abbey Road Studios in London with the guys who wrote what is really the Bible when it comes to how the Beatles recorded their albums. Kevin Ryan and Brian Kehue are the co-authors of Recording the Beatles. This uh, book took 10 years to put together. They talked to dozens of the Beatles' former engineers. And I began uh, my conversation inside the Abbey Road Studios by asking uh, Kevin how the Beatles were able to get the most out of the old Abbey Road equipment at the time. H- how did they push the envelope? Well, I mean, when they came in, it was a very primitive um, recording set up here, and it was a very primitive time for recording. And they happened to come in at a time when recording the the equipment used to record in in, in studios was evolving, and they evolved at the studio along with the equipment. So, in, in the beginning, if they're recording on something as simple as mono or two track recording, as more sophisticated equipment came into the building they would grab that and then push it to its limits so they eventually got four tracks which really allowed them new ways of recording and building up recordings layer by layer which they began to really push to its limit and the studio here had to respond a bit to the demands and come up with ways of satisfying their need for more tracks and more interesting sounds and new ways of doing effects. And fortunately, they had some very clever young guys here that were the new fresh blood of the recording studio that would join them in their sort of sonic, you know, exploration. So some of the people here at the time, some of the engineers didn't mind breaking the rules? Yes, there were not only rules to break, but an attitude of trying something that had never been tried. Most people in their job or in their dancing or their cooking or designing houses do what's always been done before. So part of the attitude is, can we try that, putting the microphone backwards or in water or on the backside of something? And that's an attitude that the Beatles had already built in. They were pushing people to think that way, too. What's been done or left alone to attract so many artists of today to Abbey Road? Uh, We're luckily in the room where the Beatles did most of their recording. Probably over 95% of their released records were done in Studio 2. There were three main studios at that time at Abbey Road, still here, uh, number one being the largest, two the middle-sized, and three the smaller one. But Studio 2 is our room, and if you look at the floor, it looks like 1930, 1950, 1970 today. And the walls, they've kept them very much the same. Uh, It's not like anyone else's studio. It looks and sounds and feels different than any studio in the world. And that's a great aspect, even though we have computers now. But we have the old microphones here from long before the Beatles, the pianos from long before, and on their records. And then you've got the best of new and old still at the studio. How did you prevent the modernization of the classic old studios? Well, I mean, the studio has continued to evolve. This the, this room down here, Studio 2, where the Beatles recorded, is largely the same. And that's partially because I think, you know, clearly that was a successful room. It was cranking out hit after hit after hit during that period. And they realized it's a, this is a winning formula. We don't want to mess with this too much. And that that's vital. Because like Brian was saying, there aren't many studios in the world that have the offer 
all of the modern technology you know they're cutting edge all you know as as up to date as can possibly be but you have all of this original equipment that was used to record not only the Beatles, but so many massive bands that have come through here, Pink Floyd, those are available for everyone to use that, re- that comes here to record. And the same instruments the Beatles recorded on are still here, you know, pianos. You can use those on your recordings today if you come here, and there are very few studios that offer that. Is it true that Paul took some equipment, some instruments from the old studios? Some was given to him. Uh, just a gift. I mean, he's made so much money for them, it, it seems reasonable. And other things I think he might have purchased as well. They even had auctions here long ago where they were selling equipment, and some of it went away to other people, and Paul has seen the sense in, let's buy that back. It's part of my history, as well as a unique and valuable item. I'll get it back. So we might find some relics of Old Abbey Road at Paul's homes? Oh, yeah, you definitely will. He has old microphones, and like Brian said, the old Mellotron. Um, what did he get? The harmonium. harmonium, yeah. And some yeah. compressors and things. He yeah. even has, Paul even has, one of the interesting things Paul has is a set of studio lights that back in this in 67, one thing the Beatles complained about about the studio was that it wasn't hip enough. They wanted some cool, modern, psychedelic lighting, and they requested that in the studio. And the studio placed uh, three light tubes on a stand and it was sort of their attempt to accommodate the Beatles where that was concerned but Paul has acquired those lights he has those at his studio too which is fascinating you mentioned the Mellotron and I read somewhere that John Lennon noticed the Mellotron first during a recording session for somebody else and then bought one for his home did the Beatles use the Mellotron and first I guess you should explain what that exactly is it's a, a, a keyboard from the 1960s originally that was new technology at the time where they would record an instrument note on a piece of tape, like a C-sharp of a flute. But they would record each note, the C-natural and the, the B-flat and the A, on different pieces of tape and then put those pieces under a keyboard, like a piano. So if you played the keyboard, that note, C or D, whatever was under the keyboard, would play on a tape player back then. So it's essentially what we call sampling now, but they used analog tape to do it back then. Uh, You know, difficult to make it work and very mechanical at the time, but it was brought into the studio to give them sounds like artificial strings, artificial flutes, and they used it on the beginning of Strawberry Fields. There's artificial strings on some songs, or even artificial guitar and so forth. Yeah. With today's technology, would the Beatles have been able to fully create in concert any of their recordings, especially the later ones? It would be much easier than it ever was back then to do such things. I mean, we have samples of most people play with some kind of playback tapes. If they wanted to do a day in the life with four or five overdubs of an orchestra, it could be done without the real orchestra, even there to get the sound right. Even the studio effects could be done live. So 100%, we've seen tribute bands being able to pull off what the Beatles never imagined they could do. Yeah, I saw Cheap Trick do the Beatles, and it sounded pretty good in concert. They're doing all of Sgt. Pepper uh, several times with orchestra, and that's pretty impressive. There have been many legendary behind-the-scenes stories of how the Beatles achieved certain sounds on their records. You've heard them all, and I want to ask you if most of most of what you hear is accurate. What's what's accurate? What's not? What are your favorite stories about how certain sounds were made on some of their most popular albums, some of the most popular tracks? Well, one of the interesting things, one of our friends is the former manager of the studio, and before that he was a technician that worked here in the tech department, and at the time he was assisting the Beatles and other groups on their sessions. 
And so at the time, there was a four-channel tape machine. That's the most number of tracks you could have. And they had different ones, but each one could only record four parts, whether it be like the band on one, a singer on the next one, an orchestra on the next one. But George Martin asked him one day, could we hook two of those machines together and get more tracks? And that had not been done here or almost anywhere else. There was no way to do that like hooking two cars to run together down the freeway. Mm -hmm. And the next day he had invented it. This man, Ken Townsend, had invented a way to run two machines, and they were able to do it on that song, A Day in the Life, from Sgt. Pepper, to stack multiple orchestras on top of each other. That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me, we always heard that John Lennon didn't like the sound of his voice. How How did they try, or how did John want that sound covered or buried? I mean, he just always—he was always looking for ways to change the sound of his voice, um, and it's—it's it's amazing to 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 try to think of someone not loving that voice. It was one of the greatest voices in rock and roll, um, but a lot of people don't like the sound of their own voice, and he was—he was the same. Um, you know, double tracking, like Brian was mentioning, Ken Townsend, and this is another one of the creative things that happened here at the studio was a way to give the impression of a voice being doubled on a recording through electronic means because you can thicken a voice on a recording by just recording the voice twice and it's a double tracked vocal is a very common effect but john hated doing that though he liked the way his voice sounded double tracked because it sounded different it's kind of you know and so um ken townsend figured out a way to using a very clever way of using separate tape machines to have john record the vocal one time split it off, create a double of the vocal, and this sort of shifted around so it sounded like there were two vocals of John. And that was a very popular effect for a long time. But, yeah, John was always looking for ways to alter his voice. He wanted his voice hidden in a way, didn't he? Hidden, altered, changed, yeah. yeah and it's just a, it's this fascinating thing because it is one of the greatest you know voices. The very early Beatles tracks hold up really well. I'm thinking of songs like I'll Follow the Sun. Now, you're talking about something 60 years old, and it sounds fresh, it sounds clean, it sounds like today. How do you explain that? I mean, some of it, obviously, is the songwriting, but there's got to be something more. It's funny you mentioned that song. One day I decided many years ago to listen and decide what was the best recorded Beatles song. And recorded is arguable, but what I meant was It sounds like the person is in the room with you. A classical recording, you try not to enhance it or change it. You want to capture the actual sound of the thing. Or a jazz recording tends to be very literal. And I'll Follow the Sun is one of the ones where the guitar sounds not like a studio guitar, but if they were sitting in front of you on a couch. Paul's voice is that way, very natural. But given that this studio was built here to do classical music, the microphones, the mixing boards, the tape machines were designed to be perfect preservation of sound as much as they could with that year's technology. There was a capability to capture sounds with good fidelity, very natural, and, you know, kind of slightly flavored, but very positive sounding. So all the Beatles did mangle sounds, and they did like to change things around. The core of it is good recording equipment, the good technology, and people trained to do great recordings. So You've got a big help there. You're starting, like, if you're making a film or shooting photographs, you want a great camera and a great lens. Same situation. Or cooking with good meat and good cheeses and things. Sea salt. It makes your cooking better if you just start with good ingredients. I'll follow the sun. No reply. Babies in black. There's a crispness to those recordings, isn't there? 
Yeah, there is, and and part of it is just like Brian was saying, the the amazing equipment that they had here and the training of the guys because they went through an apprenticeship. Uh, you know, when they were here, you came in as a as a tea boy making tea and and running errands, and you sat and you watched the masters at work, the guys that had come before you, and learned how to record classical, perfect classical records, and you learned. You know how to record a very solid recording, and also there was a, this, a period where the Beatles were also pushing for brighter and crisper pop sounds that they were hearing from America. So that that's part of what was happening here at the studio too. And in the beginning, we've heard how George Martin sort of took the boys, the lads, under his wing. But after a certain time, did they really produce some of the later work? Or how, how involved was George Martin in the final couple of albums? Around the time of the White Album, George was even gone at times. He was looking to build his own studio. And he let them alone because they'd taken over the reins. He had an assistant uh, named Chris Thomas, who later became a very famous producer. But Chris Thomas asked George if he could be in a kind of follower. Can I see what you do? Can I apprentice to you? And then he said, you go in and take care of the Beatles. Now, he wasn't meant to be the producer, but he was there to help them and do it. And they started helping them kind of co-produce some of their work. So literally, George was not here for parts of it. But they often went back to him. And certainly for the last album, they decided that things were going a bit too much sideways. It was best if they all got together again, worked with George Martin again, and tried to get a record done, which became the great Abbey Road album. What did you guys think of the the documentary? The Get Back documentary is a masterpiece. I think it's the greatest thing to come along to show how music is made and to show how talented they were, even though we were discussing today that it shows flaws. It shows them with weaker lyrics or unformed songs, but then you realize the distance they came to make something to be the right version and how much their talent guided that. You don't just start off with gems every time and brilliance, but we sometimes see Paul creating a song like Get Back within a minute and a half, three minutes, he's pretty much written the whole (laughs) basis of the song that later became so famous. One of the great things about watching that is that if you've ever been a guy in a band, you've watched what happened in that room go down, where you start with pieces of nothing, just little ideas, and you polish it together, and you end up, hopefully, with something great. But it shows that it, it really humanized them in a way, too, because you see them go through the process, okay, we have nothing, and you work on it until there's something there, and you see them trying out, you know, alternate lyrics that didn't make it into the final thing. And I just thought I could have watched it, you know, another six hours of it because I found that I understood them a bit more after that, and I felt like they were normal guys that had a really good band. That's what it was, you know. I want to thank both of you. Congratulations on the book, and we could spend hours because I'm a Beatle maniac, but we'll. We'll do part two another time. Thank you both very much. Thank you. We enjoyed it. Wonderful. Thanks. The authors of Recording the Beatles, Kevin Ryan and Brian Kehue. And I wanted to mention this uh, in connection with our Beatlemania stuff. Uh, If you really want to get into the weeds and... (laughs) and read uh, a lot about uh, Beatlemania and the 60 years of it, you can go to this website that's uh, very in-depth, ForgottenHits60sBlogspot.com, 
Forgotten Hits 60s blogspot.com and the, the number 60 with a S after it. Forgotten Hits 60s blogspot.com for Beatle Maniacs only. And by the way, we'll post uh, all of our Beatle features that we'll be doing over the next couple of months on the Surratt Show page at WGNRadio.com. After our broadcast ends, we put them up there for you to listen to again. And in some cases, you'll see some pictures associated with the features and uh, websites too and we will have more of our Beatlemania anniversary celebration from the uk next week